So this is the last week of our series through Acts. Um, I hope that you guys have enjoyed it. Uh, but beyond enjoying it, I hope that you have been challenged and pushed outside of your comfort zone, of your level of expectation and within your normal life. Um, I trust that God has been doing things within you. I can see it. I hear it in, some, in conversations that we have. I know that he is. Um, as leaders, we're excited for what he's doing within us. As I said back in, I believe it was November now, that we want to change the culture of this church to one that's primary emphasis is a, a church that is sent, a church that goes, a church that knows and understands the mandate of it to proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. And um, we'll continue, just because Acts is over doesn't mean that we move on now and we forget that portion, but we'll continue just to massage that into who we are and to build that deep foundation and encourage each other as we just did with stories. So this is the last week, and um, a couple of months ago, Shannon and I were down in Southern California, and I went to this luncheon. I was invited by uh, Nick Saltis, who leads Southlands Fullerton, which was the church that we were at, that I was teaching at that Sunday, and he said, hey, it's Friday, um, I've got this thing that I've RSVP'd for, you'll be my plus one. And I said, okay, cool. I mean, you know, you're just kind of going to serve anyway. So it's like whatever he was, had for us, I was going to do regardless. And he didn't tell me what it was. Um, and we went out, <clears throat> and it was that morning. I was like, what, what are we doing, by the way? And he kept saying, like, we've got this thing Friday. It's going to be, you know, for hours on end. And so he says, we're going to go to a luncheon today that's put on by a nonprofit organization. One of his members at his church works for this nonprofit organization called Gospel Patrons. And we're going to go to this luncheon today. It's going to be hosted by... Um, a guy, and we're, it's going to be gathering with pastors primarily, but also with businessmen. So I go up into the hills of Yorba Linda, and I go in above Brea to about a, I don't know, 5,000 square foot house that had to be millions and millions of dollars looking out <clears throat> over this beautiful view. And I'm sitting there, and I realize I'm in way over my head in terms of like, these guys are in a completely different league than I am. I'm sitting in this group, and there's the the stewardship pastor of Mariner's Church, which is a massive church in Southern California, the stewardship pastor for Saddleback Church, with most, most everybody knows Saddleback, and a number of very um, well-to-do Orange County businessmen and financial investors. The thrust of the conversation was, how do we leverage the wealth of Orange County for the kingdom of God? And I sat there, and <clears throat> it was probably a three-hour four-hour affair, and I was so moved as I left there um, listening to these guys who realized that they've, they've, they've honed in on an idol of Orange County, and they're going to figure out how they together can further the kingdom by leveraging that. And it was inspiring, and I came back myself motivated, realizing while we're, we don't have the affluency of Orange County, the city of Sacramento has affluency. Um, it doesn't even have to be affluency is really what I settled in my heart. And I'm getting beyond myself at the moment, but it was this. It was this, this willingness, this understanding, this sense of generosity to give above and beyond, to understand that what we have has been given to us. While yes, you go out and yes, you work, and, many, and most all of you probably work very hard, and you earn the income that you receive on a weekly or monthly basis, the reality is, is the breath you take every day is given to you. 
the ability to stand up and walk out that door and the faculties to drive to your place of business, the intellect that you have. For those of you who are, who are business owners and entrepreneurs, all of those things are God-given benefits that we are nothing more than just grateful recipients of. And when we begin to dial in in that type of a perspective that puts rightfully before us these things that we have, these resources that we have, how do we use them? How do we give them back to the one who gave them to us? And so I was <clears throat> just thinking through, and it was stirring in my heart, and I was talking to the other guys, and, and I said, I want to do a week on the advancement of the gospel through radical generosity. And I would love to see that become a predominant characteristic of us as a faith community. And I'm going to expound on that because there are some, there's need for clarification because I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. So um, do me a favor back there in the keynote. I'm just going to move forward for the sake of time. Would you just put up the title keynote so that we've got it there in front of us? So this morning we're talking about the advancement of the gospel through radical generosity. The first thing I want to say is this. There's a difference between faithfulness and generosity. You can be faithful without being generous. And now, when I say that, again, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying, because I don't want it to make it sound like faithfulness is a lesser than quality than generosity. But my point is just to say, we have to recalibrate our thinking, because sometimes we think of, well, I, I give, I give faithfully to the church, I give continuously, I give to those who are in need, I give of my time, I give of my, my, my home and my resources, I give, but it's a posture of the heart, ultimately, is the difference. And it's what holds us rather than what we hold. So there's a difference. My question is then to say, is it possible to be faithful without being generous? And I believe it is. I just want to say from the onset, I don't intend to speak on tithing this morning. I don't want to get, that's not, not the emphasis of this. If that was, we would have taken the offering at the end of the, <laughs> of the teaching this morning, right? So this, I think most of you know this comes from no place of manipulation on my part whatsoever. This comes from a, 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 a genuine desire, myself included, to be recalibrated to see that what I have is leveraged to its maximum for the kingdom of God. And it's not just money, but it's our time. It's our families. It's the talents that we have. It's the resources, again, that have been given to us. So we're not going to talk about tithing although there's probably a lot that could be said that's in relationship to this morning. But just to pave the way for where I do want to go this morning, I do want to say this, that the earth is his and everything in it is his. Everything was created by him and through him and for him. Everything. It's all his. It's all under his control. It's all being used by him to achieve his ultimate purpose. And, and we take a step back and we look at this, this, um, this, this macro level, if you will, this macro perspective, and we realize it trickles down into everything. When we can confess that it is all his, every stitch of it, this shirt that I wear, these words that I speak, whatever these plastic things are in my wallet, it all belongs to him. And therefore, it should all be submitted to him for his use and for his purpose. And I say that with speaking to myself included. 
because I need to be recalibrated in my thinking as well. I want to say also, too, that we are a community who is a faithful community. What we have done over the last three years with generosity and faithfulness to the Syrian family is commendable. And so what I also don't want you to hear this morning is me standing here as a leader and saying, like, you guys need to get it into shape here. It's time for you really to tighten that belt and open those wallets and start giving. I want to commend us for our faithfulness because we've seen what God can do when we hold our hands like this. And so there is, this does exist within this community. But what I'm stirred for this morning is what I've already said of of just an absolute hold on to it loosely. Is that a song? Hold on loosely by 38 Special. Yeah, we hold on to it loosely. That would be great if it was playing in the background right now, right, as I was doing this. Now that wouldn't that wouldn't be good. <clears throat> so I've been gripped with this this idea of radical generosity, to be so consumed with the end goal. You listen to what I'm saying here. To be so consumed with the end purpose, with the end aim in mind, that whatever the resource I have at my expenditure, I use it all of it for the furthering of the glory of God. The end aim is the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at what cost? At all costs. And I believe that that's what we have seen through the book of Acts. And I will open it this morning and we will look at passages of Acts where it was at whatever cost, the gospel will be furthered. And of course we know many lives have been laid down, not just in the New Testament accounts, but also through the records of time for many men and women who have given their lives. What do we have at our expenditure? What can we use to further the glory of God? That, I believe, is New Testament Christianity. That is the pattern that we see within the New Testament. And actually, what Scripture tells us is that the more that we seek, the more that we endeavor to keep for ourselves, the less that we ultimately have. It's counterintuitive to culture, right? Scripture says, you want to keep, you're going to lose it. But if you want to gain, then give all. Whoever would seek to keep his life will lose it. And Paul says, of course, we know that he says, everything I count as a loss. All of it is rubbish compared to the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ. So it's this seemingly this, this backwards perspective, this backwards economy within the kingdom of God that says the more that we try to amass, the less that we will ultimately have. But the less that we try to amass, the less that we try to keep, the more that we give away, the more we actually ultimately will have. To be generous, to be open-handed, to give liberally, to give when need is presented with longevity like we have been doing with the Syrians, not just when it's convenient, not just out of compulsion or obligation, but with open-handedness, with faithfulness, and with expectation of what God will do. That, I believe, is the kingdom economic lens that we can and ought to have. The culture of the kingdom of God is not like the economy of man. The economy of the kingdom is not like the economy of man. And I think sometimes we're foolish to think that we can take the systems of man 
and place them within God's economy and expect the results that God desires. Turn with me. We're going to look at the book of Acts. Let's get into the word of God with the time that we have because I have much that I want to say. And as usual, I am my own worst enemy. And I'm running against the clock. I want to begin in a well-familiar portion of text, and I use this to lay the foundation for what are three things that I believe are, are innately part of building a radically generous culture. And let me just say this too. I use the word radical, and Kevin talked about this a number of weeks ago. The word radical speaks of the effect to the foundational, the fundamental nature of something. So when we talk about radical generosity, we're talking about a complete, as I have said already, the recalibration, a fundamental change to our understanding and to our perspective and to our thinking and way of life. So Acts chapter 2, let's look at how it began. This is a portion of text, again, that's very familiar. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it's entitled, The Fellowship of the Believers. We all know what this is directly following, right? This is after Pentecost. Here we are in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And it says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. All who were together believed and had all things in common. I want to just dial in very quickly on this idea of fellowship. <clears throat> this, I believe, is the, this, the, the real first account of the New Testament church's all or nothing, whatever it takes type of mentality. And it's directly following, as I said a moment ago, Pentecost. And so here we see that something new, there's, a, there's the DNA, the beginning DNA of New Testament Christianity is laid out in these three things, the apostles teaching, the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. And I think a lot of times when we think of the word fellowship, we think of it in terms of their commitment to one another, to relationship, their commitment to the, to the community of God. This word fellowship that Luke is using here is actually, <clears throat> in the Greek it's the word koinonia, but it goes deeper. It has more intentional usage here on Luke's part in this chapter 2 of the book of Acts. There was a tangible outworking of the devotion that they had to one another that manifested itself in the inclusion of their possessions. It wasn't that they were just committed in sentiment, but they were actually committed tangibly in a deeper more significant way that went so far as their possessions and their monies. And the importance to this is this, that this devotion, this commitment was not birthed from external coercion. It wasn't the apostles getting together and saying like, okay, now here's the teaching on the 10% of the tithe. Oh yeah, by the way, it's going to be on your gross and not your net or vice versa or however you want to do it. That wasn't what the apostles did. It was birthed by an internal compulsion within the New Testament church. 
and extended beyond just a sentiment and a commitment to one another and to the community, but it included their possessions. Now, a lot of times we can look at this, and I don't want to look too far and read too much into it, because I think sometimes what we can do is we look at it and we say, oh, well, this is like, they're all sitting around the campfire singing kumbaya, like this is the ideal beginning of the New Testament church, and everything was perfect, and let's sell our things and move to Eureka in a communal land. That's not what this is saying. And we're going to look at why that is. A result of Pentecost was not just an investment of time and emotional currency, but actual investment, investment of dollars and cents to the work of the gospel. And the reason that we know this is true, because just three verses later, which we looked at, in verse 45 it says, and they were selling their possessions. So here it is, they're devoting themselves to these things, and what is the result? And they're selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any who has need. There was a readiness in their hearts to treat their possessions as community property within this partnership. This was the financial price tag that came with New Testament Christian living. So how do we see this culture of radical generosity birthed in a community. What's the foundation for it? Is it real, or is it me just trying to muster up a bunch of emotion so that we can get more resources for our community? What is true? Let's look at further into the book of Acts. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4, two chapters later. And I'm going to read this portion of text, and this is really what we're going to delve into today. beginning now in verse 32. This portion of the text is titled, They Had Everything in Common. Now the full number, actually, let's, sorry, let me step back. Let's look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Verse 36, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart 
You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last breath. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Well, that's encouraging, <laughs> isn't it? Well, I better clarify well right now, huh? You might deduce, you might deduce something that isn't helpful today. <clears throat> it's an interesting, the, the resemblance of this portion within Acts 4 as to Acts chapter 2. However, in chapter 2, as I said, it served as a conclusion to Pentecost, is what we see in Acts chapter 2. The church is filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the expression of the community. And then we, here we go, and, and, and we arrive at Acts chapter 4. And as I was thinking about it, Acts chapter 4 is really almost a launching point for what the community of God would begin to do and pertains to putting their hands to the work of gospel proclamation. <clears throat> it was the beginning point for all that God was about to do through them. It's important because what would be required of them, what the work necessitated, was not only the literal, their, their practical resources, but hearts so freed from earthly possessions that they were nothing more than a means to an end. So looking at this as the beginning point, if you will, for the work of the gospel proclamation within Jerusalem and to soon to be beyond and to the ends of the earth according to the commission of Jesus Christ. It necessitated hearts that were free from possessions that saw them as a means to gospel proclamation and not to an e the end in and of themselves. And so three things I want to deduce, two from this portion, and then we'll look at the next. How do we build a generous culture? The first is found in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and it says, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. A generous culture is the result of a spirit-filled community. We saw that in Acts verse 31. They were filled by the Spirit of God. And then it says, and here was the expression of that being filled by the Spirit. What directly preceded in 32 was the Holy Spirit having filled them. It wasn't the result of them all coming together. As I said, and the apostles are going, listen now, you need to sell your things and bring the money to us. No, it was a result of the Holy Spirit. It was the result of the regeneration within the hearts and lives of the men and women. This was New Testament Christianity. This is what it meant to now be a Christian. To take what was had and to give back that he might use it for his ultimate purpose. It was a byproduct of new creation life in community. There was nothing that was seen as too precious. There was nothing that was held out of bounds. There was nothing that they said, don't go there, don't touch that, that's mine, 
I worked for it. I deserve that. And interestingly enough, what do we have? This juxtaposition of two heart postures seen in Barnabas and seen in Ananias and Sapphira. Nothing was too precious to Barnabas, but something was too precious to Ananias and Sapphira. On the one account, we have a heart posture that was born by the Spirit of God that we see in Barnabas. On the other, Peter literally says to Ananias, Satan has filled your heart. One was born by the Spirit, the other was born by the flesh. Barnabas' obedience was a voluntary heart response. It was action-oriented. It saw the need. It heard the cry, and obedience was, was brought and was the response. There was no reservation. There's nothing here that indicates anything other than he had a field, he sold it, and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. I love how succinct it is, and yet we get almost like half a chapter for Ananias and Sapphira. It's almost like the Lord wanted to expose the heart of the one and not even commend the heart of the other. It was just, this is what it is. This is what he did. Ananias and Sapphira, their response, it was compulsory. It was obligatory. Their sin was pride, self-preservation, self-promotion. False generosity, greed, deceitfulness, all the things. And Peter's going, was that not yours to begin with? That was your field. And when you sold it, was the money not yours as well? It wasn't that Peter is saying, that's mine, give it to me, or that doesn't belong to you. But it was the heart attitude that was exposed in that moment of saying, here it is, this is what we sold it for, and withholding from themselves. Interestingly enough, there's only one other use within the Greek of that word of withheld. Sometimes it can be translated as pilfered. It was in the story of Achan and Jericho when Achan withheld that which was the Lord's. It's the same. It's the same usage here that, that, that Luke uses to describe the heart of Ananias. He kept back the whole for himself. He pilfered from the Lord. See, God knew within, the, within that time what the extent of ends of the earth gospel proclamation would necessitate, what the church had to do in order for the gospel to reach the ends of the earth. He knew. And so it's, it's imperative for us to understand that this is normalcy within Holy Spirit regeneration. This is a result of the work of the Spirit of God in making people new, releasing their hearts from the things of this earth that grips us potentially the most. The second of the, is this. So the first is it's a result of a Spirit-filled community. The second is a generous culture is built as an act of grace-fueled obedience. So look at verse 33, directly following verse 32. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection. That's really important as well. We can't miss the importance of that. And I just want to notate that in your scriptures there. That this giving, this generosity, it was all around the witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And with great power, they were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. What was born by the Spirit must be continued by the Spirit. It must be fueled by the Spirit. If it truly was a work of the Spirit, just like the Christian life, what of the Christian life is not from him first and foremost? And of our Christian life, what does he not sustain on our behalf? Perseverance is an act of grace in our life. Steadfastness is an act of grace in our life, right? Is it not reasonable to think that this too then would be an act of the grace of God? Because who can give beyond their means except for the grace of God being activated in our life, keeping us free, keeping us mobilized for something of greater purpose? It's a byproduct of grace. Just as faith comes through grace, perseverance comes by grace, and obedience continues by grace, so too is generosity lived out in such a way that it's by the grace of God. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. Am I moving too fast for you guys? Okay, good. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is Paul now writing to the church in Corinth, the church in Macedonia, or one of the churches in Macedonia, and he says this, concerning this grace-fueled obedience. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. What kind of grace, Paul? For, a, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So in extreme affliction and in poverty, the church has given above and beyond. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Favor there can be, is translated charis, which can be translated as grace. In the Greek, begging us earnestly for the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves, listen to this, first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that he had started, that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. See that you excel in this act of grace. In verse seven, but as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and earnestness and in your love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace. Paul's words in verse five are profound, I think, and utterly important to this point. Insightful pertaining to the foundation of this grace expressed in generosity that they gave themselves first to the Lord. What a commendable and exemplary heart posture. In affliction and in poverty, what did they do? It wasn't compulsory. It was out of great joy because they gave to him who gave to them first. So it was this heart posture of whatever it takes, Lord, we give. What do we have? Well, we don't have much, but we're going to give that, and you know what? We're going to give beyond that as well. But they did so first unto the Lord. Their aim was to God. Their aim was towards him and to him and him alone. 
They didn't seek the favor of man, but they sought the glorification of God in their circumstance at whatever cost. When our goal is his glory, then what we have at our disposal, that which he has given to us, is a means to an end. It's a means to magnify, to testify, and to champion the glory of God, who is Jehovah Jireh, our provider, right? The one who provides. So as Jesus would say, therefore do not be anxious in Matthew. Don't worry about what you'll eat. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you will drink or your body or the clothes that you put on. And what does he say? Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So this is an act of grace-fueled obedience. And then thirdly, it's this. A generous culture is a culture that's furthered by faith. Turn with me to Acts chapter 11. You're probably very familiar with this portion of the book of Acts. If not, this is a really cool record of the church responding in a moment of faith. Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. This is the church in Antioch. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So what did they do? So the disciples determined that everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Those four words, and they did so. Can you imagine that this morning? If Doug Proctor stood up and said, listen, the Lord has spoken to me. There's going to be this severe need that's going to be happening. We don't know when. And we went, okay, let's, how do we respond? Let's respond. That's what, that's what happened. Maybe Agabus had a little more credibility, Doug, in his prophecy. I don't know. I'm not saying you don't. Would be. Okay. We'll just say maybe. <laughs> and this really, I think, pointed summary here that we find in these really three, three verses just squished in. There is an example of absolute faithful obedience on the part of the Christian church. Two faith applications. The first is a present faith application. The prophetic call demanded a now faith moment. It demanded in that moment for them to have faith. We're not given any other detail. We don't know what Agabus said. We don't, we don't know anything beyond what we have right here. But what we know is that, and they did so what was spoken, and they responded in that moment. And it necessitated, in that very moment, faith for what God was calling to. This radical generosity is not always predicated on what can be seen or understood or measured. As I said, again, we can't take the world's economic systems and processes and place them within kingdom economics. We don't get 
to see P&Ls, and, and, and we don't get to see debt registers, and we don't get to see depreciation scales. We don't get those things in God's economy. What we get is a call to obedience, and what it necessitates is a level of faith. The other was a future faith application for what God would do. They had to act now in faith, but they also had to believe the word of God in faith for what he was saying through this man, Agabus. The church in Antioch believed the word of the Lord for future needs, and they gave faithfully and in a faith-filled manner. We, too, I know that we believe the Lord speaks to us, right? We believe that the Lord speaks presently. Are we ready? Are we postured in such a way? Or are we still waiting for God to show us the profit and loss statements before we're going to extend ourselves? I mean, I'm making light of it, but sometimes we do this, right? I mean, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to be a good steward of what God has given you. But my point is to say that, A, this was normalcy. This ought to be normalcy. Not communal living. I'm talking about freedom in our hearts. Free from the, the, the idols that this world so easily and readily promotes. Free from the things that we basically need in life. I mean, let's face it. We need a good percentage of these things. But my question to us today is what are we willing to do with them? Where are we willing to go with them? How far will we be like the church that Paul speaks of <coughs> that gave according to their means and beyond as well? Many of you here today are in some type of economic affliction. Can you give from that state in faith? I've heard countless stories of people who have said, listen, I didn't think I had it, but I gave. And guess what? God was a provider. God came through. I'm challenging my own heart today as well, you guys. Please, this isn't me just railing at you. I want us to be a church who gives beyond its means. I want us to be a faith community who is so compelled by the furthering of the gospel that it is a whatever-it-takes type of mentality. What is the call? What can we rally around? What is the Lord speaking for us to sow into? And so, you know, we do give a portion of what, we, what you give. We turn around and we give as well. We're sowing it into the partnership that we're a part of, into planning churches, into encouraging leaders as they are working within churches as well. But I want to be a community of believers here in this city that is known for its generosity, that is like, wow, what are these people about? These guys are doing crazy stuff with crazy money. Yeah. So my question, I leave you with this today. How do we leverage what we have for the furthering of the glory of our Lord? Because that's really the question. If the chief end of man is to glorify God and to make him known, how do we Use what we have to leverage that. How do we leverage what we have for that glorification? How do we take this powerful resource and harness it for gospel proclamation? 
See, I think this posturing, being mindful of this and saying, yes, Lord, and beginning to open our hands even more, I think this posturing, it not only makes us ready, but I think simultaneously what it does is it fends us from being gripped by earthly treasures. When we stand like this, what is that but just a posture of openness and stuff goes right through? We're a conduit is what we are, right? We're a conduit for the grace of God. We're a conduit for resources. We're a conduit of stewardship. We're a conduit, you guys. We're not a reservoir. We're a conduit. Let's be conduits. I want to leave you with this. I read this this week as I was studying for this morning. This was John Piper 19 years ago. He stands up. He's speaking to a bunch of college students. I don't remember where he was at. He says this, People who make a difference in the world are not people who have mastered a lot of things. They are people who have been mastered by very few things that are very, very great. If you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ, thank God, and you don't have to have a high EQ. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to have good looks. You don't have to be from a good family or from a good school. You just have to know if you basic, simple, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things and be gripped by them and willing to lay down your life for them. Which is why anybody in this crowd, in this community here, can make worldwide difference because it isn't you, it's what you're gripped with. I love that. I've been asking myself this week, Lord, what are the things that grip me? I think those are questions we need to ask ourselves. What are the things that I'm holding on to tightly? It's going to be different for each one of us. It really is. But I know that as you begin to both ask that question and open yourself up to hear from the Lord, He's going to begin to show you. He'll gently put your thumb on certain things. Sometimes you don't even realize it until you look back and you went, oh my gosh. It's boom, 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 boom. Just this week we had something. I was sitting, I'm, I'm, it was Friday, and I was kind of, all of it had come to a culmination, and I'm beginning to put this morning together on Friday. And in the mail, I get this check in the mail. And I was like, what the heck is this? It was like, um, I got three items in mail that day. I got a magazine and two envelopes, and I opened up the first one. Well, Shannon and I had just bought a, a, a new car recently, and it was a, a $3 check from CarMax because we had overpaid on our registration. I went, ah. Oh. You know, sometimes you know those envelopes, and you can kind of tell there's a check in it, and you start getting excited. You're like, what, what am I getting money for? So it was like three, I said, oh, three bucks. That's cool. Then I opened up the next envelope, and it's a check for $1,900 for something that I wasn't completely unaware of, but here's my point in saying this. I wasn't expecting it, and I just went, man, I started to put it together because the Lord had spoken something to me this last week about my own personal life and my willingness to give, and I felt like at that moment, all he did was just remind me, listen, dude, he said that. He said, dude, <laughs> L- listen, dude, that thing that you were stirred about earlier this week, I want to show you there is means outside of your expectation and ability that I can provide for you. And it was just a reminder for me. And I, so I just leave that with you guys today. What are the things that grip us? 
What are the things that grip you? Where do we need to release our, our hold on? And how can we collectively leverage what we have for the kingdom of God and for the proclamation of the gospel? I don't want this to be the last conversation that we have about it. I believe that this is just the beginning, and I believe that this is part of what it will be to be a radical community of new creation life and to have awesome impact within our city. So I pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would give us the grace to do so. Would you please stand with me? Stand as I stand. Let's pray together. And then, Kev, what I'll do is I'll just turn it over to you, man, and you can encourage us or close us, whatever you see fit. Lord, I thank you. I thank you personally for the challenge that I feel in my own heart, both to identify what really has a hold on me and two, to begin to think, how can I use what I have in a way that isn't just faithful stewardship, Lord, but goes beyond to countercultural, radical generosity, culture-changing, city-impacting, gospel-proclaiming. What are those things, Lord, that you have given me? Lord, we know that to him who is much is given, much is also required. So we ask for the grace of God to be stewards. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ for those of us who are riddled by debt, Lord, that you would help us find a way to come out. Lord, I pray for those who have stewarded poorly their finances, Lord, that you would give them the grace of discipline, that you would give them the ability, Lord God, to begin to steward well what you have given to them. Father, I pray for hearts that are gripped by material possessions that you would free them in the name of Jesus. I pray that we would see the glory of the Lord as the greatest, the best, the ultimate trajectory of our lives, Lord God. At whatever cost, let that be our mantra. And Lord, we know that as we step out in faith, that you will bless us with grace and that your Holy Spirit will encourage us and that you will make a way for us in this. Lord, I pray that this community of believers would have great impact by the resources that you have given us. I thank you for the faithfulness of this community. And Lord, I believe that you have made us a faithful people. You have taught us that so that you can take us this next step, so that you can build upon us, Lord. We understand that the dire circumstances of this world require great response. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us with that in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for what you will do. Stir our faith for what is unseen. Stir our faith, Lord, so when you call us, we respond. Father, let it be to your glory, all to your glory, not our own. Keep us, Father, from hearts that withhold, but give holy unto you. In the name of Jesus, amen.